everybody. Welcome to this edition of the Pac-Man Podcast, Patriotic American Citizen. I'm Ted Flint, your host, and we begin this broadcast with a couple of local stories, local if you're from upstate New York. A gentleman who was in the assembly maybe, I don't know, six years, eight years maybe, three terms, four terms, Steve McLaughlin. Uh, was arrested this week and charged with stealing thousands of dollars in campaign contributions to settle a personal debt. I'm reading here from the New York Times, and the Times must be loving this because McLaughlin is a true conservative. He, As I was saying to my wife last night, he was Donald Trump before there was a Donald Trump in politics. This guy shook him up in the assembly. He was a change agent. He wasn't going to sit there and take his 79.5, then 79.5 a year, and then just, you know, right off into the sunset and, and retire. He he shook things up. He's a conservative. He's serving as the executive of Rensselaer County, and he's accused of drawing $5,000 from his campaign fund in November of 2017. He was still a member of the assembly then to satisfy a debt to an aide. And McLaughlin allegedly steered the money to a political consulting firm which in which he had uh, close ties, Hudson Valley Strategies, which then cut a check of 3500 to McLaughlin's staff member. Now, if he's found guilty, McLaughlin, he was, he's charged with two felony counts, including grand larceny in the third degree, which carries a maximum sentence of up to seven years in prison. He would be removed as county executive if convicted on the felony. So those are the allegations. And I'm thinking to myself, this when, when I heard about this, it just sounded fantastic. I know Steve has made a lot of enemies over the years. Uh, he takes no prisoners. And I think this is a witch hunt. I think the same way they went after Trump, the uh, political opposition, I think McLaughlin's enemies have uh, come up with something. I'm, I'm not saying these uh, charges are not true or true. I don't know if they're true or not. But some campaign money, you know, changed hands, and those are the allegations. Those are the charges. We'll see how that comes out. The other issue of local note is the Cambridge Indian mascot. Now, I've talked about this on a number of uh, podcasts and the Commissioner of Education Monday ruled that the, uh, the school board's vote, Cambridge School Board of Education's vote July 8th, to reinstate the name, the mascot, and imagery. It had retired a month earlier because it had a different, the board had a different makeup. It was uh, not the right way to go. So just the commissioner herself said, you know, the imagery's got to go. She sided with the eight parents, eight liberals, many of them in the arts community, had brought about this issue, and they threatened lawsuits if the Board of Education didn't retire the mascot. So Rosa, the Commissioner of Education, agreed with the eight parents that the school board acted arbitrarily when it reversed its previous vote. This is a mess. It's not over yet. I'm not going to get into it too much today. We'll save it for next week because there's another Board of Education meeting Thursday, uh, December 9th at 7 p.m., and it's going to be a barn burner, that one. I don't know what, where we go from here, those of us who want to keep the mascot. We elected two pro-mascot Board of Education members in July. They voted to reinstate the imagery and the mascot. It's been the Cambridge Indians for, I don't know, decades. And just because they say, in this case, the Commissioner of Education says we can't use it, you know that people are going to come out to these football games and these sporting events, and we're going to refer to our team as the Indians because it's always been the Indians. We will always be the Indians, whether these eight liberals like it or not. It's a mess. There's a lot to get into. I can't do it in two or three minutes, It, but it ain't over. You know, this this issue is not over. And I, as I've told people on Facebook and uh, around the town and village, I mean, this issue was only the tip of the iceberg, this whole Indian mascot thing. The left wing in this community... And there are a lot of them. 
because of our proximity to Vermont or whatever. There are a lot of liberals here in the Cambridge area, but I think we outnumber them maybe by a two or three to one margin. But they're on all the boards. They get on the planning board, the Board of Education. Obviously, this one guy, the former board president, his wife is a teacher, a, a biology teacher, and they're hardcore liberals. They want to control everything. They want to control how people think and act, and they want to control, uh, you know, the, now the imagery and the logo is offensive to whom? To them? To two people on the board? To the eight parents? We came out, the, the, most of the village, I mean, a clear majority of uh, village and town residents support that Indian name and mascot and imagery. And just to take it away from them arbitrarily by a few people, it just undo, it undoes the democratic process. And it's not over. These people are cultural Marxists, the people who want to change the name and the imagery. I don't know what they want to call us, but they're cultural Marxists. I'll, we'll go into it in a, few, uh, a future podcast. I want to get to a couple of other things here of national note. Uh, Justice Thomas, I heard this week, really tore in a couple of these uh, pro-abortion attorneys. And uh, Thomas has been... He's been on the board since, or on the uh, the uh, the high court since 1991. He was sworn in in October of 1991. The first George Bush nominated him, and beginning in '96, Thomas would take a 10-year break from asking any questions from the bench, and uh, he took a lot of heat from this from a lot of liberal editorialists and a lot of uh, the liberal members of the Fourth Estate, which is most of them. And he asked some questions this week of some of these pro-abortion attorneys. And the only time I guess he, he asked questions from the bench was a, a case following the death of his friend, Justice Scalia. Uh, but then it's been, it's been years since he's asked questions. But I guess this week, Wednesday, and they were talking about this Missouri abortion case, which threatens to weaken Roe versus Wade, if not outright overturn it. Now, some people are saying this is, you know, Roe is in its death throes and we're seeing the beginning of the end of Roe versus Wade. I wouldn't go that far yet. I don't know where this goes, but anyway, uh, he was measured in his questions, but he asked the question of one of one attorney. He said, does a mother have a right to ingest drugs and harm a pre-viable baby? Can the state bring child neglect charges against the mother? Well, the pro-abortion attorney, his last name was Reichelman. I don't know his first name, but he said, that's not what this case is about. But a woman has a right to make choices about her body, which is, doesn't answer the question at all. So Jack uh, Prasobiec is senior editor at Human Events, a conservative publication. He weighed in on Thomas's performance. He says, Thomas is reeling them in. He's asking them to tell him where any of this is written in the Constitution. Of course, it isn't written in the Constitution. Justice Brennan, in 1973, in his ruling, invented some kind of a privacy clause in the 14th Amendment, which doesn't exist, or hadn't, for a hundred and some odd years. Anyway, back to uh, Prasobiak says, the abortion Beckys are flailing about. They know there is no textual basis for Roe versus Wade. These were two incredible moments during the oral arguments this week. And uh, Thomas is brilliant. You know, just because he didn't ask questions for 10 years doesn't mean he, he doesn't know what's going on. I mean, he doesn't speak just for the sake of speaking. And then Sotomayor made a bizarre comment. She said that evidence of fetal pain is not proof of life. What? I mean, obviously, she's a left winger. She was uh, nominated by Obama. But we could be seeing the beginning, beginning of the end of, of Roe versus Wade. I hope and pray that's the case. Uh, 62 million unborn babies have had their lives snuffed out 
in the name of a woman's so-called right to choose. When you mix politics and medicine, you get politics and not health care. That's according to Pennsylvania State primary candidate Dr. Oz. He was on Newsmax, and when I read this, I'm thinking, Dr. Oz is a Republican? Now, he's, he's Muslim, which doesn't mean he can't be a Republican. But being in the medical community, I would figure he'd be a Democrat. But he's been vocal about uh, some of Fauci's uh, statements. And I'll give you the quote here from Oz. He said, we have a J. Edgar Hoover of public health right now, Fauci. And that's not what we want. And uh, he was on Greg Kelly Reports on Newsmax. He goes, we, we just want to have people coaching us, giving us advice if they're scientists. And let the people who are the decision makers, who have been elected by the people of this country, make decisions accordingly. That process has been thwarted a little bit. It's been off kilter, not balanced. So... Uh, he went on to say that's actually one of the big problems we're having in America today. People with good ideas get shamed, they get silenced, they get bullied, and they get canceled. And in medicine, if you don't say what you see, people die. So Dr. Oz is running as a Republican in Pennsylvania. I just want to finish on, on some of his comments because he, he praises Donald Trump. He said Trump is one of the most prominent conservatives who should be celebrated and not vilified for his response to the COVID pandemic, having done things that I think he didn't get credit for. No matter where you are in the political spectrum, the Operation Warp Speed was a success. He called the mRNA vaccines the gift to the world. I'm not for the mandates, but I do believe the vaccine was a plus. This is something we should be celebrating. Instead, it was the opposite. People are literally, were and are, literally rooting against what President Trump was trying to do on COVID. And at the time, we're sitting there thinking, how is this possible? And he says, as a doctor, I'll tell you, when you mix politics and medicine, you get politics. And it was infuriating because we ought to be rooting for the best solutions. Absolutely. I hope Dr. Oz is successful in his campaign in uh, in Pennsylvania. A couple of other things here, and then we'll... we'll uh, We'll uh, wrap it up. There's a 49-year-old guy in Texas, speaking of uh, the vaccines, he was forced to be vaccinated to remain on a lung transplant list. He died after receiving the second shot of Moderna. Bobby Bolin's widow, Amy Bolin, said that after his second Moderna shot, her husband developed a pulmonary embolism and heart condition and died before he could get new lungs. I'll give you her quote here. Uh, in the medical field, your goal is supposed to be to improve and save people's lives. And instead, you're giving them one option. Either you do this or you can't get a life-saving transplant. Amy said her husband had recovered from COVID-19, conferring natural immunity, but was left with no choice. He suffered from a rare autoimmune disorder that attacks the lungs. It's called COPA syndrome, C-O-P-A. His medical team required him to be vaccinated in order to get the transplants. And he knew that without lungs, I mean, without lungs, you can't live, right? His lungs were failing him. He made the choice, or she made the choice with him, and uh, he died back. He got the shot back on April 17th, developed a heart condition, and died August 20th. That's the scoop on, uh, on, that, case, uh, on that particular case. And I'm not saying that these, I'm vaccinated, as I've mentioned, but you know something, it, it, as I've said a million times, I'll say it again. It comes down to personal choice, personal liberty. People should be free to choose whether or not they get the vaccines. My daughter is going to do a, a podcast centering on, on health issues, on the vaccine and on natural immunity. So my daughter is in the process of uh, 
taking some pre-med courses. She'll be doing a, a podcast here. Listen for that, my daughter, Madeline. Thank you very much, folks. If you want to hear this show and all the fine shows we have for you, we're on all the major podcast platforms, Spotify, Apple iTunes, wherever you get your favorite podcasts, we're there. And if you want to contact me directly, it's Pacman, P-A-C-M-A-N, all lowercase, at thebmgnetwork.com. I'm Ted Flint. Thanks very much for listening. And if the Lord wills it, we will talk to you real soon. The Pac-Man Podcast was produced and edited in the BMG studio. Music by Kevin McLeod. For more episodes of the Pac-Man Podcast, go to the bmgnetwork.com or go to the BMG Network on Facebook. And be sure to tune in to the next episode of the Pac-Man Podcast with Ted Flint.